you'll grab your Bibles and turn with me to Matthew chapter 9. We'll be there in just a moment. Matthew chapter 9. If you found yourself in a time in your life when God was calling you to radical obedience, something that if you were to obey Him, it was going to be not an accident, it wasn't just going to somehow happen, it was a radical, on-purpose choice to obey. If you can think of a time in your life when God has called you to radical obedience, raise your hand. Let me just see if you know what I'm talking about. Radical obedience. Okay. Some of the others have not had God tell you that yet, or a radical obedience was to be cooperative this morning. You didn't want to do that. I don't know. Radical obedience. You know, as we pray for Pastor Trey and Candace this morning, I want you to allow your heart to go to a time when you have had radical obedience. That's what God is calling them to, and it's not easy for us, it's not easy for them, but there is something that God has for us that we want to be able to hear. We want to be in a position to hear. It was Wednesday morning, about 5.30 in the morning, and uh, my wife did not so quietly whispers to me. She says, Brady, I've been sick all night and God healed me. And my response was less than stellar. I said, okay, and rolled over and, and went back to bed. At 5.30, I was not exactly excited to talk, and I woke up, and later in the day, I thought, oh, my goodness, that was not a very good response. That's not a very good response when your wife wants to say something to you. That's not a very good response to God's healing. But sometimes we're just not quite ready to hear what it is that is to be communicated to us. This is where we started in our series a couple weeks ago with Come Hungry, and we looked at the menu, and we saw in John chapter 6, Jesus was feeding the 5,000, and the, we saw that when he fed them, they were so hungry that what got their attention over everything else was that he gave them food to eat. And it tells us a few verses later that the next morning when Jesus crossed the water and the people were looking for him, they woke up and they were hungry again. Breakfast was not provided. And Jesus says, I told you that I was more than enough. But you didn't want to have what I said to you. You wanted to just take what I provided for you. And he says, I am the bread of life. I am more than enough for you. We saw that in that first week that we can be stuffed with all kinds of things. And we can be stuffed and still not satisfied. We may not be hungry, but we could be stuffed but not really satisfied. We saw that we have filled ourselves, some of us. Our culture sure has with junk food and even spiritual junk food that there's no room left to be hungry for God. We saw that what we eat determines what we are hungry for. You show me your diet and I can show you what you're hungry for. We began to see that being hungry for God, for Him to be the bread of life, we have to resist the temptation like many who just seek out the butter and honey and don't really want the bread of life. If the bread's there, that's fine, but I just want the good things that come along with that. Are we really following Jesus, wanting more of Him, or we just want more from Him? Last week, we continued on and coming hungry to Jesus, and not just seeing that if He's the only thing on the menu, He's more than enough. We saw that when we come hungry, there are some table manners. 
We saw a Pharisee and we saw a prostitute and how they responded to Jesus were very, very different. The Pharisee came out of a fulfilling a religious duty. He was the ranking rabbi and when Jesus was there teaching out of custom, he had to invite him in. And just like that rabbi, we need to ask ourselves the question, are we around Jesus? Do we come to Jesus? Do we press into the things of him because we have to or because we want to? Is it some mere responsibility of what people will think of us if we don't? Or do we have a genuine desire? When Simon's whole life had been dedicated to studying and looking for the Messiah, and here the Messiah was sitting at his table and his feet hadn't been washed, his cheek hadn't been kissed, And his head hadn't been anointed. We saw that he knew all about the Messiah, but didn't even recognize him when he was in his presence. He wasn't in a place to hear him. He wasn't in a place to receive the good news that was given to him. It was just kind of like, okay. Jesus is here and he has healing. Okay. And missed an amazing moment. We saw that. You can know about Jesus and not really know him. We don't want to confuse knowledge of him with intimacy with him. And as this prostitute came and she wept and her tears wet Jesus' feet and she dried them with her hair, she saw that it wasn't too late for her. We saw that every single one of us have a desperate need for Jesus, just like that prostitute, whether we acknowledge it or not. When was the last time that we extravagantly expressed our love for Jesus in such a way that we didn't care who was around. We didn't care how we looked. We didn't care what it said about us. We had to break through the crowd to get to Jesus just to love on him. Jesus cares about our authenticity, not our formality. That leads us to Matthew chapter 9 as we can continue in our third week on coming hungry to him. In this room, there are three different groups of people. There are The first camp, those of you who spend a majority of your time with non-Christians. It's just the way your life is made up. Maybe people in your family don't trust in Jesus. Maybe where he has planted you to work, you go to work and it's not a God-fearing environment and they don't love Jesus. Maybe your neighbors don't trust in Jesus. For whatever reason, your environment, you spend most of your time with people who do not trust in Jesus as their Lord. As a result, what happens is, We come into church like this, and for an hour, hour and a half, a week, we begin to try to glean and take in the things of the body of Christ and from the Word and from worship, and then we go out and spend the rest of our 160-some-odd hours trying to isolate ourselves or try to live on that experience from this place. There's a second camp in this room. No doubt there are many of us in here, and I fall in this category often, that Spend a majority, if not all, of your time with people who trust in Jesus. You may be a stay-at-home mom. You may be a business owner, self-employed, and you have a lot of control over your time and a lot of say of who you're with and who you're not with. And so you spend a lot of your time with Christians. Maybe your place of employment is a place where there's a lot of Christians around you. Maybe your neighbors are Christian. Whatever it may be, we are so saturated with other Christians around us there was a man many years ago who coined the phrase rabbit hole christianity he talked about how there are some christians that just kind of pop up and they head from one burrow to another trying to dive into the safety and security of the christian community i like what john stott says about these rabbit hole christians 
in your outline, you may want to jot this down. Rabbit hole Christianity is when our only contact with the world are our mad, brave dashes from one Christian event to another. I mean, some of us, that's a good description of our life. We just kind of have one mad dash from one Christian gathering to another Christian gathering and as little bit of time as we can spend out on the surface, out in the world, the better. And we want to just run to the safety of those Christian environments. You know what he's talking about. It's when you uh, get up in the morning and you take your kids to the Christian school. And there's nothing wrong with taking your kids to a Christian school. Don't misunderstand me. But that's a part of your family makeup. Then you head off to work. And when you go to work, your coworkers invite you to lunch. And they don't trust in Jesus. And so you take an opportunity to say, no thanks, I'm going to stay back and get some work done. And you stay in your office or your cubicle and you begin to study your Bible. And then you leave a little bit early from work so you can get to your Bible study or your small group or your leadership meeting with other Christians and you finish that meeting, you go home and you wave to your neighbor who doesn't know Jesus and you hit the automatic garage door button, the garage door goes up, you drive in, you close the door and that's the extent of your involvement with people who don't trust in Jesus. Toward the uh, end of those categories, we have a third camp and that's where I want to focus this morning and I hope this is the camp that all of us are working towards where we spend time with both Christians and non-Christians. We gain something from both groups. From the non-Christians, it keeps our spiritual fervor. It keeps us reminded of the people that Jesus loves. His heart is breaking for them, and it reminds us that we have a purpose and a mission in this world, and that's to share the hope that we have in Christ. In our time with Christians, it, it strengthens us, and it also brings rebuke to us when we need that and correction. And that's where our greatest source of deep friendships needs to be and should be. And they can help us see the air of our ways sometimes. But as we look at this third camp of spending time with Christians and non-Christians, we have to look at what it means to learn from Jesus at this significant mealtime. And come hungry, we've been pulling up a chair to the table and looking throughout Scripture that these mealtimes with Jesus had a lot of significance around it. Mealtimes, eating together, it's important in our lives, and this factor is true. And here's one of the things that I'm convinced of. You may want to jot this down. When you eat with others, relationships are formed and deepened. It's not that profound. It's just, it's just true. When you eat with others, relationships are formed and they're deepened. Uh, you may remember, as I do, uh, great memories throughout your life going to church potlucks and pitch-ins, and you may have uh, fellowship dinners and all those good things, and uh, there is great fellowship that happens there. It's in our vocabulary when we talk to someone that we want to get to know better. We say, hey, let's do lunch sometime, or let's go get a cup of coffee. Let's allow, as we feed our body, as we feed ourselves, to get to know one another and feed on that relationship. Stories are told over a meal Memories are made, lives are enriched, and when you read through the Gospels, there is a constant emphasis on the importance of what takes place around the table. As you look at Matthew 9, and we're going to begin to read here in just a moment, we're going to see that Jesus had some impact in this meal, and it teaches us about this third camp. The setting is that Jesus has just healed a paralyzed man. I want you to keep your Bible open as we keep coming back to Matthew 9 over and over again as we read through it. But let's start at verse 9 of chapter 9 of the Gospel of Matthew. 
As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him, and Matthew got up and followed him. Now, most likely they were a Capernaum at that time, and therefore Matthew would have been working as a tax collector for Herod. The description, as we know, the tax collectors back then were having an even greater distaste in the mouth of the public than just tax collectors today. Because they had the authority, no matter who they were or where they went, to not only take the amount of tax, but they could add some tax onto that for their own income. And the higher up you were in the chain, the more people underneath you, the more you could skim off the top. And so people saw them as an evil person who was selfish, self-centered. They were dishonest. They did whatever they want to benefit themselves. Now, Matthew is also the author of this gospel that we're reading. And he tells us the name is Matthew, speaking of himself. But Luke also shares this story and gives us a little bit more insight. Luke's gospel refers to him at least one time as, as Levi. That was his given name. Now, you know what that's like. If you don't like your your full name so well, you kind of come up with your, your nickname. You go to that first day of class and they call out your formal name and you kind of raise your hand and you inform the teacher, from here on out, this will be my name. This is what I will go by. And though we don't have all the details surrounding this, it appears that his given name was not what he chose to go by. And instead of Levi, he was known by Matthew. This is kind of how it was for him. And I want to make certain we don't miss this potential nugget of truth for us. Apparently, his parents named him Levi. That was his given name. And it implies to us that his parents had some expectation for him to grow up and become a priest or a rabbi, or at least his name to reflect as such. Now, we don't know exactly what happened, but it could be that maybe Levi or Matthew didn't make the cut in rabbinical school. Maybe he lost interest. For whatever reason, he ends up in a more financially lucrative business, but he's not in a spiritual role of leadership that his parents had in mind for him. Could it be that every time he hears the word Levi, he thinks of how he disappointed his parents? Could it be that even his own name reflected that he wasn't that excited about where he was at. He was an outcast in society. Many did not want to pay attention to him. But eventually, Jesus was there at Capernaum teaching. Maybe Jesus, Jesus noticed him perhaps as he was teaching and he talked about how you can't love both God and money and he stands there with a sack of coins in his hand and he can see that something's processing in his brain. Jesus walks up to him at that particular moment and says, come, follow me. Follow me and drop that bag of money and let me make you into something that you have never been before. When society's eyes had pushed him aside, he was an outcast. Now, he was wealthy. He had all kinds of things that others didn't, but they did not accept him. Church, there's people that we think that have it all together, but they feel so outcast. They feel like nobody really cares, that, that they are not accepted. And Jesus cut right through that and he said, you come follow me. In a world where no one would choose to be with Matthew or Levi, Jesus chose him. He said, I want you and I want you to follow me. And immediately it appears that actually that very same day, Matthew celebrates by throwing a party. After he agrees to follow Jesus, he throws a party and he invites these different guests to come and celebrate with him. 
His guest list had people who were followers of Jesus and some of his old buddies that were not followers of Jesus. And look at Matthew chapter 9, verse 10. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. So he's bringing these two camps together, the the religious and the non-religious together, those who followed Jesus and those who didn't follow Jesus. And he pulled them together, creating this third category. I can just imagine the first 30 minutes of this party. It was tense. It was awkward. Nobody was cracking a smile. It's as if you lined up a bunch of middle school boys and a bunch of middle school girls in a gymnasium and said, now we're going to have a social gathering. And nobody wants to break the ice and talk to anyone else. But as one person broke the ice and the next person did and they began to talk, they began to mix together and it was Matthew's desire that Jesus and his followers would somehow rub off in a positive way on his friends. Now, what happens is these dinner guests of his, they greatly frustrate the Pharisees. See, they're watching everything that happens, and the parties in that day were very public, and everybody knew who was coming over to your house and what was happening, and and they were aggravated at who was on the guest list. And they had questions that seemed to be pretty legitimate. I mean, why would Jesus associate with such people with low social and moral standing? The Pharisees would never eat dinner with people who were less in stature than they would. Why would Jesus, the teacher, do this? And so in Matthew chapter 9, 10 and 11, he answers, While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? In essence, it was going to take place in this story that Matthew is giving three invitations to groups of people that the Pharisees could not stand. The first group of people, the first invitation that went out, write this down, invitation number one, it's to the seekers and the unbelievers. That's who they brought in, the seekers and the unbelievers. In Matthew's world, it was his work buddies. But for today, who is around us that's a seeker or an unbeliever? I believe it could be that college student who's home on break and They begin to have questions about their faith, and the comparative religion class at college is putting holes in their understanding of God, and they're seeking. The invitation could be uh, to a co-worker who appears not to trust in Jesus, and they were raised to go to church, but as soon as they became an adult, they would never go again, and they haven't darkened the door of a church since, and they're an unbeliever in, in a category of needing an invitation. It could be your old high school friend that when you get on Facebook, you see their status now reads agnostic. And they need someone to give them an invitation. I hope you can think of people in your life that fall in a category of a seeker or an unbeliever. I imagine during his time at Capernaum, Jesus must have had some influential moments, some relationship building with Matthew. No doubt Matthew had heard Jesus teach a couple of times, and there was some kind of exchange of relationship. And so by the time that Jesus saw that Matthew was going to have a radical change in occupation, radical change in his finances, radical change in his calling, when he went up and said, follow me, they already knew each other to the point that he knew his name. Matthew, come follow me. A number of years ago, I attended a Promise Keepers conference in Indianapolis, and one of the speakers is an exercise in that gathering 
said, men, how many of you here accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior as a result of a revival or a big gathering like this, whether it's a Billy Graham crusade or a Promise Keepers event? If you would just stand, the person said, if you have accepted Jesus in that, that kind of a thing, and about 2,000 men stood. Then he changed the question and he said, how many of you accepted Jesus as a result of a relationship with a, a father or a friend or a, a co-worker or, or some individual that built a relationship with you? And the rest of the auditorium stood. As 58,000 men, I remember it seared in my brain a visual image of the importance of relationships. Most people will be exposed to Jesus and will make a decision for Jesus because of a relationship that we have with them. I don't want to ever forget that reminder, but I want to make sure it allows me to see not only that first invitation, Matthew gave a second invitation. This invitation is to the outcast and the overlooked. For sure, tax collectors and prostitutes were in that category. The invitation today, there's a whole lot of people who are outcast and overlooked. As I said earlier, we sometimes overlook those who have great wealth, appear to have everything all together, and we say, well, they don't. They they don't need Jesus. I mean, they've got everything pulled together. They desperately need Jesus. Well, well, they they don't want to hear about it because they're probably not open to it. Talk to them. Build a relationship. On the other side, we think of the poor and we say, you know what? They, they They need food. They need a job. They need money. They have so many other things they need. They don't really need to hear about Jesus first. Just try them. They need to hear about Christ. Sometimes the outcast is someone who just hasn't had a relationship with someone yet. They've heard all about the story of Christ, but there's not been a Jesus with skin on around them to love on them. I want to suggest something to you. I want you to jot this down. When we think of non-Christians, there's, there's a problem for many of us. And I don't want you to be surprised by something. Never be surprised when a non-Christian acts like a non-Christian. It gets us all ruffled and upset when we see people in the world act like people in the world. Now, I'm not making a case to be soft on sin, but I want to challenge you that we should not be surprised when a non-Christian acts like a non-Christian. I like how one author puts it. Remember, non-believers, they're not the enemy. They are the victims of the enemy. They're not the enemy, they're the victims of the enemy. Where we should be surprised is when we see someone who is claiming to know Jesus, one of our brothers and sisters, living a life that is not pleasing to God. That's where we should be surprised. That's where we need to have confrontation and love. But when we see someone who is not trusting in Jesus, living like the world, we should say, I expect that of you. And I want to give you the hope that I have. Don't treat them as the enemy. Treat them as a victim of the enemy. In Luke fourteen twelve through 14, it reminds me of, Another aspect to this, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees and he says, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, don't invite your friends or your brothers or sisters or relatives or rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back and repay you some way. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, they will re- you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. I, I want you to allow your guest list for a dinner party in your life to be changed by this. Think of all the people you have a relationship with that could pay you back somehow. I don't mean financially, but if you love on your spouse, there's a good chance that they may love you back. You know the phrase, if mom's not happy, nobody's happy. So let's keep mom happy so we can all be happy. 
Well, sometimes I wonder if that's because we want mom to be happy or we just would rather be happy ourselves. And Jesus is saying, is there anybody in your life that you can love on that they don't have any way to love on you back, to, to give back to you? He says, there's a great blessing there. This third invitation, the final one, and I'll be through. Matthew invites the discouraged and the downcast. Verse 11, when the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus says some important things. It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. For I have not come to call the righteous, but the sinners. Those who are around us may be seeking, they may be unbelieving, they may be outcast, they may be discouraged, they may be downcast, but we need to understand Jesus didn't come for those who have it all together. He came for those who are desperately in need of him. And so by the very suggestion of the Pharisees that these people are sinners, he says, well, then that's who should be in my house. Our hearts should yearn for this room to be full of people who don't look like Jesus, act like Jesus, or talk like Jesus yet. Because Jesus is here to reach those who don't know him. Now, we want them to come to know him and be discipled and to begin to obey the things that he's commanded. And that is a very big part of our mission. But if we cannot love on them and bring them into the family, we are not doing what Jesus did. He says, I didn't come for the healthy. I came for the sick. Now, the irony of this is sometimes we think, well, we're the healthy. There's not one person that's walked the face of the earth, not one person that you've locked eyes with that's just so healthy. They don't need Jesus. We are all sinners Sick by this disease of sin, and we need Jesus in our life. As we close this morning, I want you to think, if you're in camp number one, where you are surrounded by people who don't love Jesus, I want you to think of moving from camp one to camp three. You may need to intentionally put people in your life who do trust in Jesus. Your closest friends need to know the Lord. They need to be able to lift you up in Him. You need to have an accountability group, a group of people that you give the right to ask tough questions. If you're here this morning and if you've not tried out one of our Sunday school classes, you've got to talk to someone who's on their way to one. Just skip going to breakfast or lunch early today and just... Go check out a group of people that you can hang out with. You need more Christians in your life that can build you up. A whole lot of us in this room are in camp number two. I mean, we've got this fellowship thing down with the believers, like, awesome. And, like, we've got so many Christians around us, we have no excuse of why we're not held accountable, unless it's a plastic face and we can deal with that another day. But what we need to do is we need to move to camp three and say, Jesus, would you allow me to see the people in my circle of influence, in my neighborhood? Maybe I have to change my business habits to find people who don't know you and build a relationship with them. As we close this morning, you have an unbelievable opportunity coming up on December 6th. Out here in the foyer, you'll find uh, on this side tickets to the Christmas celebration that our worship arts team is putting on. I want you to think today what it would be like for you to throw a Matthew party. Well, we've got the whole other Christians thing down for you. But if the only people who show up to a Christmas celebration is just a bunch of Christians, then we miss what Jesus' biggest party is all about. And so some of us, it's more than just saying, hey, would you come? Would you, would you just come? Come to my church thing. 
Maybe we need to say, I'm going to plan between now and December 6th to take someone out to eat. I want to get to know their name. I want to find out what's going on in their world. I, I want to have coffee with them. I want to hear what makes their heart beat, what they're excited about, and say, Jesus, I want you to help me build a relationship with somebody who can't pay me back with the intention of saying, now I want to invite you. If you'll grab a handful of those tickets, now every ticket represents a seat. So if you take 40 tickets and you don't bring 40 people with you, you need to bring them back because somebody else wants to bring them. So every ticket you see, every ticket that you hold, I want you to be praying, God, who is it that I can invite to the party together? Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you give us such rich, rich explanations in your word. Sometimes we make them so complicated, we try to get things to be so confusing that we can... Let ourselves off the hook and say, well, I just don't get what Jesus wants me to do. You made it so plain in this passage, Jesus. You get to know somebody's name and you say, follow me. I want to do life with you. When someone has truly experienced you, they do the same. They get to know somebody by name and they invite them to come hang out with people that follow you. Now, Lord, we confess that a lot of us in camp number two are drawing a blank on who is unchurched, seeking, who feels outcast, who feels discouraged, who feels isolated. And so, Jesus, we give you permission now to help us see in our circle of influence who it is we could build a relationship with. Thank you, Jesus, for loving us and challenging us to love like you do. In your name I pray. Amen.